Hey, what's going on, veterinary anesthesia nerds? I am excited about this podcast today because not only are we going to get really, really nerdy here on the podcast for a minute, uh, but we're also talking to a new VTS. Welcome to the VTS Club. And I am talking to none other than VTS in anesthesia, Ryan Ashmore, who is a CBT and VTS out of the University of Minnesota, um, has been working in anesthesia since 2016 and recently in 2021, yes, you're right, like right after COVID, man, uh, <laughs> took the test and got a veterinary technician specialty in anesthesia and analgesia. And today we are going to be talking with Ryan about a particular drug class that can be a little tricky for some people. And I'm talking about neuromuscular blocking agents. So let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I really like talking about neuromuscular agents. I think they're, they're one of those drugs, if you say paralytics, it scares a lot of people, right? It's, it seems really terrifying. 100%. Um, but I think they're a really potent like, part of an anesthetist toolbox that we can use. Yeah. So when, for the people who maybe not familiar or they're, they're listening in their practice, maybe doesn't even use paralytics or neuromuscular blocking agents. Um, tell us like, what are these drug classes? What do they do? Like, how are they functioning in the body? What's their main role? Yeah. So, um, the main role of neuromuscular blockers is to create kind of more profound muscle relaxation. So generally we'll cause that with our anesthesia. We'll have some centrally mediated effects from the drugs we give. But for some procedures, we just need a little bit more. We need the muscle tone to be pretty much non-existent. Um, so to understand how they kind of work, like a brief overview of how neuromuscular um, function works is motor neurons, when they kind of meet up with muscle cells, there's a little area of magic we call the motor end plate. Um, and that's where everything's working. So normally, you have an action potential comes down the motor neuron and meets up with the muscle cell. And it will cause release of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. And acetylcholine will go across that little junctional cleft and it binds to postsynaptic receptors. Um, and that causes a, a little ion channel to open and you get a resultant action potential and that will cause muscle contraction. So our neuromuscular blockers are, are pretty much working there. Um, and there's two types. There's non-depolarizing and there's depolarizing. Um, and I'll talk about depolarizing first because I, I think that's what most people would probably use in their lifetime. Um, so depolarizing neuromuscular blockers, what they do is they go and they kind of bind to one of the little units on the post-junctional receptor and essentially prevent acetylcholine from binding. So since it can't bind, that ion channel doesn't open and you don't get a muscle contraction. And the result is just uh, loss of muscle tone, complete paralysis, depending on the dose you use. Non-depolarizing work a little bit different, or depolarizing, sorry, work a little bit different. So depolarizing, it's in the name. So depolarizing are actually, there are two molecules of acetylcholine, that neurotransmitter, linked together, and they'll bind to the post-junctional receptor, and initially they'll actually activate it. So you'll see if you ever use this, these patients will get some muscle fasciculations, they'll get a little bit twitchy, and then it'll hold that ion channel open so it can't repolarize. So the result after that is, since there's no efflux of uh, ions, they'll just get muscle um, paralysis at that point. 
Yeah, certainly. I uh, think I remember some of that for studying for my exams. <laughs> yeah. uh, anesthesia nerds, we were chatting beforehand and that if you are out there and you're, you're using neuromuscular blocking agents, usually, you know, you find one that either your anesthesiologist likes or that works for you. And um, for us, or when I usually am using um, paralytics, I'm usually going with like the cisatricurium, but every once in a while you might go into a practice that has like the rocaronium or something like that. So it is important to know kind of what class, um, your neuromuscular blocking agent falls into, um, as we're going to talk a little bit further, um, into things like reversals and things like that. But Ryan, for people who, again, may not be familiar with these drug agents, what types of cases are we using or are you using neuromuscular blocking agents for? I mean, myself, I'm almost always using them in opto, and you can kind of give me your take on that. Um, but every once in a while, we use them for other things as well. So in your area, where do you utilize these this drug class the most? Yeah. So opto, again, is a big one for us. Um, I used it today for a conjunctival graft, um, but in being in a referral setting, we do use them for a kind of variety of things. So when we have patients who present in third degree AV block who need pacemakers put in, um, one of the things we see is when you anesthetize them, the heart just, it doesn't function electrically, right? So we externally pace those patients by running an electrical current through them. So they'll actually kind of bounce up and down off the table. Uh, and it makes it really difficult for the the cardiologist to get vascular access. So we'll actually occasionally paralyze those patients just to kind of ease access for them. So they're not bouncing around the table. Um, Opto is a big one. That's probably what we use it mostly for. So keeping the eye central, because we know if we're doing a good job in anesthesia, usually the eye shouldn't be rolling central um, in a patient that's not blocked. Other things I've used it for are like thoracic trauma cases or cases where we just can't establish control of ventilation, you know, um, you can't get them deep enough to control that. Um, sometimes even like really bad old fractures uh, with a lot of contracture or the muscles just doesn't want to let go. The surgeons will request that we give a dose of paralytic and that can actually help them, you know, with dislocations or old fractures, get things back into place. Yeah. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, um, I still do it, but I worked with an anesthesiologist where if we had like a, a really difficult um, cat intubation. We would sometimes use mm -hmm. a really quick acting uh, paralytic uh, just to get them intubated. And every I keep that kind of like in my back pocket now. <laughs> like, hey, maybe yeah. every once in a while I might pull out a paralytic for something other than opto. So – yeah, some of the short acting ones are great. Yeah, that. right. I mean, you get like, you know, your 20, 30 minutes. Wonderful. So thinking about utilizing these neuromuscular blocking agents, and just to be fair, everybody, um, while these are uh, paralytics, um, these blocking agents are not analgesics. So we want to also make sure that you guys know that these are being used as part of a balanced anesthetic protocol that does include analgesics and sedatives and all of that kind of stuff. Um, we're not just like using neuromuscular blocking agents, paralyzing uh, a patient and then like performing surgery. We want to make sure that everyone is aware and on that page. <laughs> Only as I mentioned it um, to my, I was talking about it like in front of my dad and he was like, oh my God, what? So they're just paralyzed? And I was like, no, 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 dad. They're, they're like under anesthesia. <laughs> they're not aware of like yeah. what's going on. Um, but, you know, for people again, who aren't familiar with this drug class, 
What are some things to, to take into consideration if you maybe are starting at a practice that has neuromuscular blocking agents and you yourself have never worked with paralytics? What are some precautions that we should keep in mind when dealing with this specific drug class? Yeah, so I think you brought up one of the big points um, that they're not analgesics and they're not anesthetics. So uh, one of the things we do here at the University of Minnesota is we actually have a checklist for the optical procedures and, and we go through and kind of check ourselves and confirm like, do I have adequate analgesia on board? Do I have access to everything I need for like ventilation? Is my deep enough before we ever paralyze them? Because we, we don't want to just paralyze them if they're too light. Um, so some big considerations is the neuromuscular blockers, they're not going to just affect the target organ you're working with. So they're not going to just affect the eye, you know, or the leg. So they're going to kind of go everywhere. So it's pretty common practice that you're going to need to ventilate these patients. Um, so the intercostals, the external and internal intercostals and the diaphragm, depending on the dose you use, are typically the last thing to get fully paralyzed. Um, but there will be muscle weakness. So your patient might start off with an adequate tidal volume and be breathing okay. But over time, they might fatigue, they might get hypercapnic and get acidotic. Um, so ventilation, being able to do that, I think is really important. Um, the other thing you'll see is kind of your normal monitoring standards are going to shift, right? So if you normally are checking your patient's jaw tone and their eye position or their palpebral reflex, you're not going to have that anymore. So you're going to have to rely on getting comfortable looking at other physiological values. So their heart rate, their blood pressure. Um, occasionally, you know, they, they will still be able to uh, fight the ventilator and you might see that. So you're going to have to get comfortable looking at that, looking at the patient as a whole and relying on more than just your standard kind of monitoring. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, I've had this come up, and what would you say if someone was at a clinic that was utilizing maybe even some of these shorter-acting ones, and they didn't have access to a ventilator? And at least what I have heard is like they're like, oh, well, I'll just give it positive pressure ventilation, <laughs> which, you know, in anesthesia, and I'm like, okay, but here's some things that we should consider. So if you're at a practice maybe that's using some of these shorter acting ones and you don't have access to a ventilator and you are maybe giving positive pressure ventilation, you're watching your CO2, that kind of thing. Um, but what are some considerations that we might want to take into account? Like, how would I know, A, if my drug is taking effect and giving the effect that it wants? And then, like, you know, before I take this patient off of anesthesia, how would I verify that my drug is worn off and I can, in fact, take them off of anesthesia and oxygen and pressure and ventilation and all that? So I'm a firm advocate that any patient getting a neuromuscular blocker should have um, neuromuscular blockade uh, monitoring. Um, and in human medicine, uh, they have just released the 2023 the ASA's kind of guidelines for evidence on neuromuscular blockade. Um, up at the very top is that every single person should be monitored for residual blockade. And the way that we most commonly do that is with electrical stimulation. Um, and I think what everyone's probably used to hearing is the train of four. So the train of four is essentially you're using electrical impulses to stimulate the nerves and looking at that to give you an idea of the type of blockade you're getting and how well you're doing from recovery. Um, so the train of four, essentially what happens is you have two electrodes. You're going to put you have a, a negative and a positive, and those are going to be put over the proximal and superficial part of the nerve. 
And usually for us, we're using either the ulnar or the peroneal nerve, so the hind limb or the forelimb. Um, you can use the facial nerve, but it's a little bit difficult, especially like if you get a pug, trying to get those <laughs> like leads on there and see like, are they twitching or is this just their airway is flapping? So usually the hind limb or the forelimb. And we want to get a baseline for ourselves beforehand to make sure that that's working, that we're actually stimulating the nerve. So what you'll see is um, the nerve stimulator will give four pulses and you'll see four distinct twitches. So T1 through T4. And in a patient without blockade, you should have all four present. If you don't, it's usually an indicator that the equipment's not working or it's, it's not placed correctly. And as we give the neuromuscular blocker, what we'll see is those twitches will start to go down, like you'll lose them in order. So we call that the fade. So it'll go, the fourth twitch, the last one will get weaker than the third, then the second, then the first. And when we're looking at recovery, we're looking to see those come back from the fade. So you want to see those twitches kind of come back in order. And they'll go in reverse. So they'll go four, three, two, one, and then they'll come back in reverse. And the train of four is essentially, it's a ratio of the strength of the fourth twitch to the first twitch. So you're looking at that visually to see the twitches of the limb. And you're also kind of like feeling and feeling the muscle contracting and seeing how strong that is. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I love, I, uh, I think I posted on anesthesia nerds. I was cleaning around. I found like one of the old school, like very old school train of fours, which is just like the two little clips and the little electrode things. And now we have the yep. really fancy ones, right. That I can use for, um, when I'm also doing my fem side blocks along with my train of four. So it's gotten nicer and I, I do like all of those things. Um, Ryan, let's talk for a minute about like what kind of patients would I not want to use a neuromuscular blocking agent on? Or like what are some considerations for, you know, are there any patients that I would be very hesitant to use this drug class on? Or is it a pretty safe drug class um, as long as we have the proper monitoring? I think for most patients, uh, it depends on the drug you're using. So depending what you have out there, some of them are maybe a little bit heavier on the hepatic system. Um, we use cisatricurum here and atricurum. Both of those are immediate acting and they're generally fairly nice to the, the liver. Um, but if you had a patient with liver disease, you might want to be careful depending on the types you have. Um, the types that really flag me are patients or brachiocephalics. Um, not that we can't use them, but laryngeal muscles are often greatly affected by the neuromuscular blockers. And what we'll see is these patients might be breathing spontaneously and they're doing really well, but the laryngeal muscles just aren't back yet. And these are patients that we know you kind of sneeze wrong and they obstruct, right? Because their soft palate is so long. So patients I'm really, really cautious with. Um, we had one today and I was talking to a student on it and we talked about, you know, making sure like this pug was going to be swallowing, that we had a good TOF ratio, that he looked really bright and alert. And then even afterwards, we're going to watch them very, very, very carefully to make sure they don't obstruct. Um, those are like the two types of patients that flag me. Patients with myasthenia gravis are another big one you have to be careful with because they have an autoimmune disease that already affects the amount of functional receptors they have. So they're very, very sensitive to that. Yeah. All right. Totally makes sense. Good to know. And then Kind of like final question, you know, if things get crazy and we run into an emergency situation, right, um, an anesthesia, we love things that are reversible. Um, if we run into an emergency situation, can I reverse my neuromuscular blocking agents? 
Uh, you can't, depending on the type you're using. So non-depolar or depolarizing, we said we really don't use that much. Um, it's more use on the human side because it's short acting and they use it for intubation because we like to laryngospasm. Uh, those, they're, they're pretty short acting and they just kind of get swept away into the plasma. But the non-depolarizing, depending on the type you're using, um, you can use a, a couple of different drugs. So one of the drugs we can use is uh, acetylcholinesterases. So neostigmine and edrophonium are kind of the ones that come up the most often. And essentially what they do is they prevent acetylcholinesterase from breaking down all that acetylcholine. So you get a massive rush of it in that neuromuscular junction. And eventually it competes with the drugs and it wins and you get a muscle contraction. The problem with it is you have to be a little bit careful that you're building up acetylcholine at the nicotinic receptors. But the other big spot we know that we worry about under anesthesia with acetylcholine is the heart, right? The muscarinic receptors. So you can see essentially a giant vagal response. So often when we reverse these patients, we're giving it with an anticholinergic to try to avoid those effects like the bradycardia, um, the drooling, things like that. Um, if your hospital is really fancy, there is a drug called uh, Sugamadex that's used um, mostly for rocuronium. I believe you can get rocuronium with it as well. Um, but it basically encapsulates the drug and prevents it from doing anything. And that's kind of nice because you can reverse your paralysis without having to worry about any of the side effects. Yeah, I love – I have not used uh, myself. I've never – I've d reversed with like neostigmine and the glycopyrrolate. I've never used the sugar medex. Uh, I, I know that's not how you say it, but I don't care. It's just like really cute. It sounds like a really cute, fun drug to use, um, but I have not used that one myself. Um, but I'm not like rocking with a lot of rocaronium either. So um, yeah, cystaftrocarium yeah. is usually like our preferred um, at the places that I have used it at so far. All right. So uh, to wrap it up, Ryan, what are some like key points? What are some key things that I need to keep in mind if I have just given my patient a neuromuscular blocking agent? So I think the biggest things are just being prepared for everything, right? So you're going to need some kind of mode of ventilation. These are never, ever patients that should be given a drug that if they don't have a, a patent airway. Um, the only time you do that is if you're using it to facilitate intubation, but these are patients that you have an airway established, you have a mode of ventilation that you can provide to them, um, a mode of checking their neuromuscular status and the blockade, especially in recovery. And then, you know, just kind of having someone to watch these patients in recovery, even if they've recovered from neuromuscular blockade, I would still argue that they should have a dedicated person watching them. These aren't the patients that I would just put in a kennel and kind of leave them alone um, because of the risk of laryngeal muscles kind of being weak in aspiration. Yeah. So like most things, anesthesia, it's super, super prepared. Yeah. Prepare for the worst. Hope super for the prepared. Best. <laughs> Somebody said, said one time that, you know, um, they were like, oh, I don't know if anesthesia is for me because I think it's just really boring. And I was like, no, you don't understand how much preparation goes into ensuring that it's boring. Like that we want it to be boring, but we spend hours preparing stuff yeah. to make sure that it stays boring because – I mean, I don't know, right? Well, you are a VTS and anesthesia now, so you, you're you on the same page. Like, we're all – we like it, like, you know, only 2% of the time do I like crazy excitement, things going nuts, and then I need the rest of the time to be, like, pretty chill. You know, that's that's what I want. I want my anesthesia – anesthetic events to be as chill as possible. Um, 
one thing that I, I did think of, you know, like you said, most of these patients, um, especially like, you know, their ophthalmology, um, they are potentially brachycephalic and we're using these neuromuscular blocking agents on them. If we have a, a worry about, you know, extra laryngeal blockade, or if we are worried about any kind of aspiration, is there anything that you guys put in your pre-medication protocol to help with that? Do you guys regularly use um, things like Serenia or things like Pepsid or et cetera? Um, maybe mm-hmm. not specifically for patients that have had neuromuscular blocking agents. So I'm just going off on a little tangent here. But um, for any patient that we might be worried about aspiration, do you guys utilize any additional drugs in your pre-med or intra-op to help with that in recovery? Yeah. So brachycephalics, I think all of them benefit from ROPT and Fomotin. Basically, I'm trying to keep their gastric contents moving out. And if it's going to come up as not acidic or as at least acidic as possible. Um, so we will include meropitin and pantoprazole famotidine, um, especially for the ones that have a history of regurgitation um, and aspiration. Yeah, excellent. All right, me too. I'm, using, I'm like all of the preventatives with the brachycephalics. <laughs> so yeah, it just made me think of that because I was like, you know what? Actually, I think the last two opso patients I had were, of course, like old diabetic pugs that needed cataract surgery. And so like they're all of the things going wrong for them. I do love the pugs though, you know? Oh, I just do love them. <laughs> They're just overrepresented in all anesthetic complication talks. Oh, 100%. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, I I was dealing with a, a doodle yesterday, but of course, like right next to me is like a Frenchie airway nightmare. And I was like, well, that's like every Frenchie that comes in now. And so, yay, number one breed in America. Woo! <laughs> Yeah, we've definitely changed a lot in how we practice with brachycephalics in general in the last couple of years. And I think for the better, there's been some good research out there. Yeah, yeah. And certainly, um, hey, well, this is that's an idea for another podcast episode. Maybe we'll have you come back on and we'll talk about brachycephalic anesthesia. As you know that I am a pug person. I love my pugs. I say this as my chihuahua is snoring behind me and giving me ugly looks. He's <laughs> like, wait a minute. I know. Now, now we're chihuahua people. Here we are. Um, but Ryan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, For you guys listening, we are going to put links to some information on the neuromuscular blocking agents so you guys can read up more about them. Um, As always, if you guys have any questions about anything, hit us up on the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds webpage and we will send you all of the resources that you need. Ryan, thank you so much for taking some time out today to explain everything to everybody and hopefully making this drug class a little less scary and nightmare-inducing to people. Yeah, thanks for having me.